Welcome to the latest edition of At The Flicks, your one-stop shop for movie news, interviews and reviews. Welcome to our latest review show. This month our reviews include Zack Snyder's Justice League, Palm Springs and Six Minutes to Midnight. And then there's Jeff's quiz. Nope, strike that. It's Phil's quiz this month. The show's sounding better already. Just because you were lucky you managed to get an unused Admiral's uniform on eBay, <laughs> don't get cocky. <laughs> Later in the show, there is Darren's Dash, which this month includes The Columnist, The Owners and Love and Monsters. Finally, before we start our show, a shout-out to our listener of the month. Hello over in Switzerland to Susie and Mariana. Young ladies, we owe you a big At The Flicks apology. Last month, a naughty man used some very bad words on our show, which managed to slip through my initial editing. <laughs> Rest assured, that wicked man has had his mouth washed out with soap and he promises never to use such horrible language again. Isn't that right, Neil? Yes, sorry. He's sitting on the naughty step. Greetings and salutations. My name is Jeff, and my main cinema interests are political and horror movies. Okay, it's rant time, listeners. Now, I've been following award seasons with interest for 47 years, and this time it has been the most uninspiring ever. It is a combination of not being able to see many of the movies in advance, welcome back again to the 1970s, and shock horror, they are generally an uninspiring bunch. Let me illustrate this with an example which shows how bad this year's been. Sasha Baron Cohen won an award for acting. Let that sink in for a moment. Sasha Baron Cohen won an award for acting. And before you lot say, he was good in the trial of the Chicago 7, he won it for bloody Borat. I'm starting to think maybe Marlon Brando was right. Just give your awards away to the Indians. Don't. Goodness gracious me. <laughs> no. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, good grief. Native Americans, Jeff, not people from the Indian subcontinent. OK. Hi, my name is Graham. My main cinema interests are sci-fi and comic book movies. Jeff is right. If there's any justice with awards, then Mel would have won for the double whammy of boss level and fat man. That whammy, I think you mean hammy. <laughs> Hi, my name is Neil, as I have never won an award in my life, apparently. I agree, get rid of them. <laughs> Hi, my name's Phil. You can find out more about my film tastes on my blog, which is philthebearblog at wordpress.com. I've got to say, whilst agreeing with Jeff sometimes gives me palpitations, <laughs> I, I have also been incredibly frustrated that the award-nominated films have not really been available in the UK or been really hugely delayed. I've managed to see seven of the Best Pick nominees. One is brilliant and six are decent. It's not a spectacular crop. And to be honest, I suppose in these COVID-delayed films times, I suppose that's not a surprise. Wow, Phil, have you managed to see these films that haven't been released in the UK? Harsh, shivin' my timbers. No, no. Six have been released in the UK, and The Father was available in a, an online film festival. I think it was a Scottish online film festival. <laughs> okay. Right. That's a good answer, Phil. I'm sure the judge will believe that. <laughs> 
Hi, my name is Darren, and if you want to hear more of my movie taste, uh, check me out on uh, halfguarded.com. Now, normally, at this time of year, I would actually be writing my regular Oscar piece, but this year, I'm giving it a miss, because as far as I'm concerned, Oscars be so depressing. Look, I'm open to films with heavy subjects, and I will be watching them all. I'm sure some of them will be great. I'm sure they're all very worthy. But this year's Oscar lineup, frankly, makes me want to stick my head in a gas oven. In fact, if I filmed it doing that, I'd probably get best nomination for a short film. <laughs> and frankly, I'm not going to miss talking about the Oscars this year because, frankly, all the screaming arguments over agendas that come around, being tutted and if I say that I like a Tarantino movie or some other um, problematic filmmaker... And frankly, if you must know, I'm really seething because Birds of Prey got screwed over for not being nominated for Best Hair and Makeup. So, frankly, I'm boycotting them. That's very good. What do you think, listeners? Do we need film awards anymore? Susie and Mariana, have you seen any films which you think should be winning awards? While we wait your erudite responses, no, Jeff, erudite isn't swearing, let's go over to Phil for this month's quiz. Hold it. Hold it, Neil. I have to give the answers to last month's first. I was hoping you'd forget. Speak if you must. Of course I will. Stick with me, Neil, and you'll win some awards. I don't want to win any of those. No, you're already nominated for Best Sidekick to a Welshman. (laughs) (laughs) For those paying attention... Or for anyone who cares... Here are the two unanswered questions from last month, and only one has since been answered by our listeners. That one was, what is the name of the fictitious town where Jim Carrey lives in the movie The Truman Show? And the answer, correctly guessed by Joel, was Sea Haven Island. By the way, in response to the listener who did answer that correctly, I would ask you to be more forgiving of our team. You have to remember, some of them are very old, And at the time of night we were recording, they were all already late for their Horlicks. (laughs) That would go down like a lead balloon in most places, (laughs) wouldn't it? Apart from the north. 55% of our listeners are abroad, Jeff. (laughs) (laughs) Horlicks will mean nothing to them. Or maybe it means something completely different. (laughs) Yeah. Please don't. As for the still unanswered question, that was, name the film General Stillwell, as played by Robert Stack, was watching When Disturbed by Panicking Military Personnel in the Steven Spielberg movie 1941. And the answer was Dumbo. And thank you to our mystery guest star last month, who correctly answered the shark question Graham struggled with. (laughs) And now, over to Phil, who's doing his questions in the style of Blockbuster. So what I've decided to do, because Jeff's uh, questions are completely random off the cuff, is I thought I would loosely arrange them around the films we're reviewing this month. Ah. So if you've been paying attention, you may have a tiny bit of a chance, but you might not either as well, because I am a bit random. (laughs) Question number one. Palm Springs stars Andy Samberg, who is a member of the Lonely Island, who also produced the film. The Lonely Island are responsible for the absolute comedy genius film Pop Star Never Stop Never Stopping and numerous other films and songs. 
that has nothing to do with the question, but everyone should watch Popstar, <laughs> Never Stop, Never Stopping. Oh, product placement inside the quiz. Great, okay. Can any of you name the other two members of the Lonely Island who directed Popstar, Never Stop, Never Stopping? Adam Sandler and Drew Barrymore. Nope. You said that with such confidence, Jeff. It was incredible. I thought you got it. I have no idea. Okay. It's going well. Question number two. We're going to be reviewing the Snyder Cut, which is now possibly the most famous director's cut of all time. One of my most beloved films, Blade Runner, has numerous cuts. Can any of you name how many cuts it's widely believed there are of Blade Runner? Seven. Straight away. And you get bonus points if you can name what they are, or at least some of them. Um, I've got a question. You get the uh, bonus point, Graham. The, the, the original film version, the ultimate edition, the director's cut. The director's yeah, cut. Do, do you want me to tell you? Go on. Go on. So there is the work print, the American theatrical cut, the international theatrical, theatrical cut, cut, yes, the director's cut, and the final cut, cut which are yeah. all generally available. And I think you can get a box set with all of them. And the two others is there was a cut made for a San Diego film festival, and there's a television version that was cut for television as well. Oh, wow. Okay. Did I not know that. Exciting times. Right, you got one though, that's good. Right, so question number three. From one Scott brother to another, Tony Scott made a number of films with Star of the Little Things, which we're going to be reviewing, Denzel Washington. Can you name how many Tony Scott, Denzel Washington films there are? And again, I'm looking for a number and bonus points if you can name the actual films. Five. Exactly on the money, five. Five. So the five are Deja Vu. Um, Pelham 36 is one of them. Yeah, take no, the Pelham 123 is another. But there's that one with the train with Chris Pine. Man on Fire. Man yeah. on Fire. Unstoppable. Unstoppable. Yeah. Unstoppable, yeah. So that's four. So what's the fifth? Gene Hackman. Oh, and uh, 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 Crimson Tide. Yay. Well done. Well done, Jeff. Well done. Right, okay, so question four, and my last one. This week, we're reviewing a film called The Kid Detective, which reminded me of all-time classic detective films, including Chinatown. Chinatown featured famous film director John Huston in an acting role. And this year, I discovered that John Huston, whilst playing the lead role in Orson Welles' final film, Whilst they're on hiatus, he popped off and directed a little tiny film that starred two knights of the British Empire. Can you name the Houston film that he directed and the Orson Welles film? Gee. Uh, the Dead was the Orson, was the John Houston film. Transformers no. the movie. Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> it was Orson Welles' last film. That, uh, Graham. It wasn't. And I, I, and I know Graham um, loves the John Huston film. It stars two knights of the British Empire. Orson Welles film, and it stars two knights. Oh, no, so the John Huston film stars two knights of the British Empire. The Orson Welles film stars John Huston. 
Is it the man who would be king? Yes. Mm. Ah. Yeah. So John oh, Huston, whilst they were filming the Orson Welles film and they ran out of money because Orson Welles was prone to do that, he wandered off to go and make a little film called The Man Who Would Be King. Do you know Start- he'd been trying to make that for 20 years? He originally was going to make it with Humphrey Bogart and Clark Gable. Good there you go. grief. Uh, and uh, the Orson Welles film didn't actually get released until about, well, in the last five years or so, because it was pieced uh, together. So it, te- it becomes his final film. Um, because yeah. Right, okay. Which So technically, Darren was right as well then. Well, he, he may well be, but I don't, I don't know what his actual last film he, he released whilst he was actually alive. Okay. I have no idea what that is, by the way. Is that the thing that became the other side of the wind? Yes. There you oh. go. Jeez. No. Christ, sorry, that was I tell you it would be a good one. I, I was hoping he was going to say, what was the name of the character John Houston played in Chinatown? It was Noah Cross. A useless piece of information. Thank you, Jeff. <laughs> so there you go. That's, that's three out of four, though. So I feel that my questions are more accessible. Yeah. Yes, that's a good idea. And I and I answered one, by the way. Thanks, Phil. It's a pleasure to hear random questions with no reference to, thank God it's Friday. Things are looking up. Uh, excuse me, excuse me. I've had that on repeat in my car recently, the soundtrack to Thank God It's Friday, and it's still great. Oh, God, I bet your neighbours hate you. Right, we I continue. I was in my car, so I'd be <laughs> driving. It wouldn't be on my bloody drive, would it? <laughs> well, you don't go very far in your car. You get lost anywhere out of your drive. You probably hate him anyway. <laughs> we continue to look up as we move over to the review section, starting with Zack Snyder's Justice League. I had a dream. Almost like a premonition. I think there's an attack coming. My lord. This world will fall. I need warriors. I'm building an alliance to defend ourselves. How do you know your team's strong enough? If you can't bring down the charging bull and don't wave the red cape at it. We may never know the 100% true version of what happened behind the scenes of 2017's Justice League. What is clear is that when filming began in April of 2016, the pressure was on Jack Snyder following the negative reactions to the theatrical version of Batman v Superman. Filming wrapped in the end of 2016. However, midway through post-production on May of 2017, Snyder left the film following the tragic suicide of his daughter, Autumn. The reins were handed over to Joss Whedon, supposedly to finish the editing, special effects and film any necessary reshoots. The resulting film that hit cinemas in Christmas of 2017 was not well received. However, stories began to emerge that Whedon's rewrites and reshoots had drastically changed around 80% of the film that Snyder had made and rabid fans, driven by rumours of a mythical Snyder cut in the Warner Brothers vault, started a campaign to see Snyder's original vision of Justice League. For three years, fans, reporters and YouTubers clashed over the existence of the Snyder cuts. But as photos and cutscenes and storyboards started to leak, and with the surprising and subtle support of the cast, the release of the Snyder cut movement continued on. Finally, in 2020, 
Snyder was able to announce that Warner Brothers was allowing him to resurrect his vision. With a $70 million budget, he will be restoring his original footage, taking out the Whedon reshoots, and with updated special effects that he originally envisioned, Zack Snyder's Justice League was set to be released on HBO Max with a whopping four-hour runtime. That the Snyder Cut is a very different film to the Whedon Cut, there can be no doubt. But my question first is to you, Phil. Is it a better movie, and has it all been worth it? Well, I think we could probably do an entire show on this saga if we wanted to. To your questions, is it better? Yes. Has it been worth it? Probably, although I do worry slightly about the precedent it's set for toxic fandom, but I guess we're not going to see how that plays out for a few years yet. But obviously it's already triggered the release the air cut for Suicide Squad as well. So hopefully fans don't just ask for a different version of every film they don't like. Although the original film of Justice League was absolutely awful in big, bold capital letters, I hated it. This film, I think, is actually really good with two caveats. Firstly, it's really long, and how that plays to you is going to be ultimately dependent on how much you like four-hour superhero movies. You do have the respite, though, that it's clearly broken into chapters, so you can watch this in six chunks or two-hour chunks or whatever you want to do. And secondly, it's really, really Zack Snydery. And by that, I mean, if you don't like 24 minutes of slow motion in a four-hour movie, then don't watch this. And that's taken from a film website that actually bothered to do a stopwatch to how how long all the slow-mo was in this film. So it's only a a three-and-a-half-hour movie then, really? (laughs) Yeah, 24 (laughs) minutes of slow-mo. But, you know, the way that Snyder does his superhero films is that everything is high stakes and ominous portent and everything's big. And, you know, the slow-mo works for that. And I guess, you know, there are going to be people out there who just don't like Snyder films and the four-hour version of a Snyder film is not going to change that. Things that I really, really liked about this are that the tone is now consistent. There's no awful erratic jokes that kind of bounce in and out of this sort of ominous big end-of-the-world story. The visuals have a consistency so there's a steel gray palette you know another thing with snyder is everything's quite dark and ominous and it now looks the same throughout there's no sort of jarring bright colors and stuff and the big thing the really big deal is that the storyline's comprehensible it might be four hours long but it gives each character time to breathe and we have to remember that this film was supposed to be introducing to us The Flash and Cyborg and Aquaman, they were the first times that we really got to see them. And the original did that, none of that, any justice whatsoever. And and this actually does. I watched the four-hour cut twice in the space of the first few days after it was released. There's a couple of things I still don't like. Snyder and Ezra Miller's version of The Flash is not the Flash that I like from the, the comics that I read. But, you know, that doesn't matter. It's it's their version of The Flash, and at least he's consistent now instead of being that awful comic sidekick that he was in the Whedon film. And I really don't like the 4-3 aspect ratio. I, I'm assuming 99% of the people who've ever going to watch this are watching it on the tele- television screen at home. 
And yes, it would look great on an IMAX screen, but I'm not watching it on an IMAX screen. For me, overall, the Whedon version doesn't exist anymore. There's no reason to watch that ever again. Even if the DC Universe is still a mess, this film and Man of Steel, as far as I'm concerned, are the big event movies that fit Snyder's kind of tone. But I won't be watching Batman versus Superman again. <laughs> so, interesting. Thanks for that. But my question is, how has Joss Whedon, the guy behind Buffy and the first Avengers film, had such a fall from grace? For this film particularly, and for, for his version of it, so he, he clearly, I mean, I say clearly, from what I've read and from what, you know, when you watch these two different versions of this film, he's been asked to come in and bring some levity and make the film jokey and a bit more Marvel's Avengery, because obviously, you know, he did the first two Avengers films. But the problem with that is he's got a film that's really dark and ominous and heroes as gods, and you can't slice together a bit of that with a bit of a joke and a bit of that with a bit of a joke because then you just have this incoherent mess and that's what I liked most about this film is that choppiness and that jumping around is gone you now have a consistency throughout you might not like that tone you might think that Snyder's got his head up his ass and that he thinks that he's really self-important but you have to accept that that's his vision and he's actually got to put that on the screen that at least makes it worthwhile and, and worth watching particularly like your head up his ass comment and now great <laughs> and now graham over to you thank you very much jeff that uh, i got the head up the ass reference thank you my one line review for this film would be oh so that's what it's all about <laughs> this is what it should have been this is the full story the complete vision the correct tone the definitive article I've always wondered what goes on inside the minds of studio executives and producers when the director's out of the room. The original theatre release of Justice League, with its muddled, tone-shifting, confusing, incomplete, cheap-ass look, is exactly what's in the head of these empty suits. I think this is light years better than the original, and I do lay all the problems of the original one on the on the studio execs and the producers. I, I'm not a great fan of Josh Whedon stuff, but I think he was just delivering them what they wanted. I'm a film fan. I'm pleading with the corporate suits that they stick to their spreadsheets. As a collective, the suits lack the ability to envision something majestic, uplifting and meaningful. Their small, penny-pinching, one-dimensional thinking takes art and reduces it to a simplistic series of moments. Nothing in their head flows. Their inner monologue is dull and monotonous and depressing. They obsess about what others are doing in the Marvel Universe and not on what they're developing. When Warner Brothers executives saw the original cut of the Justice League after Snyder had left, they wanted three things. They wanted to make it shorter you know, like those Marvel films. Well, Infinity War and Endgame is one story and it takes five hours and 42 minutes to tell. And the rest of it. <laughs> they wanted the tone lighter as nobody wants a dark brooding movie. Well, The Dark Knight is one of Warner Bill Brothers' biggest grossing movie and it's the darkest, most brooding superhero movie that there is. 
and they wanted more jokes and wanted moments of light relief because who wants to watch a downer movie? Spoiler alert, comic book fans do. That's who. Dark Superman, Dead Lois Lane, Planet Earth laid to waste by an alien invasion force. Yes, please. I'll have that. Bring it on. In conclusion, I'll just keep this short. I prefer Zack's version. I would always rather watch a director's chaos than a producer's snooze fest. I just hated the first one and I love this one and I agree with absolutely everything Phil said. It's so much better, apart from the uh, 4-3 ratio, which didn't seem to bother me at all. I was just totally into it. I thought it was great. A gem. In the middle of that review, you said you don't like Joss Whedon's work. No, so, not particularly. I mean, I like okay. I like some of it. I like some of it. I don't I don't hold him responsible for the mess that. No, that... no, but this is whole. This is what I'm trying to get out here with both to Phil and to you. This is whole down on Joss Whedon, the guy who created Buffy, which did change a lot of TV. Made the first Avengers film, which is even I've got to admit is pretty good, yeah, and good. also was behind Cabin in the Woods. Yeah, but the thing is, Jeff, is if Joss Whedon was asked to make a Justice League film. He wouldn't make either the film that he produced or the Zack Snyder film that was has just got released, would he? If he was asked to make a, a Justice League film, you'd probably have snappy dialogue and you know, something hip and trendy and what have you, and it would be fun because that's the kind of thing he does. You mentioned Buffy and Angel and the um, Avengers films. But what we got was a Zack Snyder sort of quarter of what he did and a and a please can you achieve this comic tone and you sort of mesh them together and it's just a weird frankenstein yeah exactly okay fair comment you also spoke about light relief so let's hand over to neil (laughs) (laughs) this has to be the first imax film i see when cinemas open again for god god sake cine world Please take note. This deserves big. It's ambitious and rewarding. The 4-3 ratio, I didn't really get that, that bothered by it. I mean, with some of the things, if he only had a certain amount of time, then some of the, some things had to be cut and the sort of making the ratio 16 by 9 or whatever for uh, TVs obviously wasn't part of that uh, that the cost. And all it had to be was coherent and better than the original, which frankly wasn't that difficult really the film stands as a counter to the formulaic comic book based films it dares to be different and i applaud that and the cinematography is gorgeous that as as phil said that steel gray palette of uh, from fabian wagner who was sidelined in the original fantastic most of the good stuff is kept there's more on cyborg which helps it still has humor but not the corniness of version one and yes it's four hours but fans wanted everything and so he provided it i'm sure there'll be a third version maybe three hours or three and a half hours but till then sit back enjoy and don't forget to take a cushion because <laughs> you're gonna get sore bum why do you think there'll be a even shorter version i think there's bits in it that um i was listening to a, a reviewer who said that he'd heard that there may be certain bits like that flashback that um, Batman has where he, he or the dream sequence and some bits don't really make sense that maybe he could put a little bit more in and uh, cut it down again but maybe not maybe he'll just leave it 
Yeah, please leave it. I, d- I don't want another Snyder Cut campaign. No, no, there <laughs> won't be a campaign. <laughs> no, there won't be a campaign until Zack Snyder makes another film, and they all go, "No, we don't like this. This is terrible." Director. As we're going to be reviewing one of his films in the next couple of months, we'll see. Darren, over to you. I mean, if he could get everybody involved to talk truthfully about what went on behind the scenes of his film, it would make an absolutely fascinating book or a fascinating documentary of some sort because it's one of the really incredible stories that we've had in films over the years with with the campaign and, and everything. And I mean, I'll be honest, as somebody who, because of the shows I used to watch back in the uh, you know, back around about 2016, 17. Because I used to watch shows like Collider. Um, I've I've been following the story of Justice League, you know, back when it was just a film being made. And there's a lot of stuff that's been forgotten. There's a lot of revisionist history uh, about, you know, Zack Snyder and the studio. And the fact is, I don't think we still know exactly what 100% went on behind the scenes. The, the fact of the matter is, this is a ultimately better movie. There's, there's no question of that. But the narrative is, is a lot better. I mean, I don't think that this is the version we would have seen in the cinemas anyway because there's no way they would have given Zack Snyder a four-hour film to, to, to make. And I think in some respects, Snyder has benefited by the weeding version because a lot of the stuff that people hated about the weeding version, the, 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 the look of it and, and, and stuff like that and the humour, I think he was able to sort of like, you know, basically sort of, you know, tweak those, you know, work off that somewhat. We really could have done an entire show of how different this is to the to the, to the Whedon version, and and for me it rectifies a lot of the stuff that I I really hated in, in that version. I mean, this this the really bad writing that was along, like the bit where the alien explodes and he basically you get the three boxes on the wall and that basically sort of gets you know it becomes a plot point. The whole thing how the um, how the alien raves how they were sort of attracted by fear, you know all, all these really stupid plot points but you know they, they were all got all gone the way i mean one of the things that i think we i think we can all uh, should all agree on is the fact that the cyborg character got so absolutely butchered in, in the original oh, God, yeah. I, I mean the, the, the entire the how much of that story with him and his father i, I always thought at the time when i when i watched justice league that of all the characters they needed to be a, a solo movie of Cyborg because for a start, his backstory was interesting, but also his origin was tied into the mother boxes. So that was almost a great prelude into what we've got here. And, and when, with all that taken out of it, he not only does the film a, a massive disservice, but he also does a massive disservice to Cyborg. And I think, you know, putting that in, you just see, you know, what, what really could have been. I, I didn't hate everything that Whedon brought to the uh, to the original. I, I do think he added an element of dissension uh, amongst the ranks in certain places that I think was sort of like, you know that, that worked quite well. This is an an epic. I, I would say a, a Lord of the Rings style story of, of you know, and, and one of the things as well is I think this measure obviously it's it, even though it's outworldly uh, the version of what he did in maybe in his previous films it does tie in better with the tone and everything uh, the one thing i will say that i i think could could have done with altering is as much as i loved that big sequence at the end 
when, when it goes into the future about, about possibly alternative, uh, you know, darker post-apocalyptic world. Even though I love stuff like that and I love this here, I think there would have been better ending the film on a positive note with all the actual, you know, the Justice League because this, the, the fact that this has been a very, you know, positive sort of, you know, reaction to this film, to end it with that would have been great and then have that big half-hour section as a uh, as an extended post credits course, uh, you know, so I think that would have actually worked better. I think it's it feels odd ending the film on that. It just seems to come out of nowhere and is very confusing. So so they're my sort of um, little uh, nitpicks on that. But but generally speaking, I think this has actually been a, a fascinating project. I do suspect that the only reason we got this was because um, uh, Warner Brothers needed uh, content at a time when they basically weren't able to get films made. And so they had this film, which was pretty much mm. already filmed, but they just had to basically just sort of alter around. So that's, you know, but yeah, I, I think this has been a absolutely fascinating story from start to finish. And I, I think we actually you know this was a really worthwhile project. So, gentlemen, I can safely announce that's a wrap and another at the flux is in the can. <laughs> <laughs> Hilarious, Neil. That was very funny, actually. Now, obviously, a, a lot's been said on this film before I, I get to it, and I agree with most of the comments. I, I think the slow motion is brilliant. I think it's used 24 minutes, it might have been, but it's 24 well-used minutes. Zack Snyder understands these sort of sensibility. To be honest, Zack Snyder is a filmmaking god. <laughs> now... There are people out there that will find reasons to carp about what he's done. Obviously, the Warner producers, as Graham said, but also Marvel fans. Because you know. they have half-baked plots. Snyder is fully invested in the grandeur and the godlike proportions of these characters. This is a true epic in both length and scope. Yes, it's in 4.3, and I've heard the comments from my fellow reviewers on that. And yeah, I'd love to see that in IMAX. I think it'd be Fantastic. But I think in this case, he uses an epic plot, but by using the 4-3 ratio, he creates an intimacy. It's monumental. If you go back to Marvel, and obviously I, I say a lot of things about Marvel, which always aren't complimentary, and there are good reasons for that. But Avengers Infinity Wars, one of their few good films, hmm. is very similar to this. And I think they copied a lot of what Zack did. Oh. And <laughs> you know, how this is jeffrey writing history okay jeff they copied a film that he'd not even made yet <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's like in school darren they were looking over his shoulder as he was writing it um yeah but avengers infinity war like this film sets up a really great epic story and has a downbeat ending like this film does which i think is perfect in town unfortunately avengers went one more film and spoiled it all but that's another story <sighs> But in this, I, I think, you know, again, I, I go on from my fellow reviewers. They've expanded the characters. Um, the Aquaman, I thought, was quite nice, the way that fits into the Aquaman film. But even though they're, you know, they're developing these one-off character films like Aquaman, like Wonder Woman, it's still Zack Snyder's universe, and it's very much Zack Snyder's film. It elevates the superhero genre. It's... The Citizen Kane, I think, of <laughs> comic book movies. And I've got to ask myself, in all seriousness, over a glass of whiskey, I did ask myself this question. Is it something that Marvel can aspire to? Oh, you geez. know, time will tell. 
But I suspect the answer is no. They have no Zack Snyder in their universe, unfortunately. And I think the Marvel sell-by date has been reached. Well, for DC, on the strength of this, and as long as they keep Zack, they are beginning to flower. This is an orchid. This is a midnight blossom. It's fantastic. <laughs> I've, I've, got to, I've got to chime in with two things, there, and, and they're, they're connected. So Darren made a really cogent point about the fact that actually, if things hadn't happened how they were, we would never have seen this film because Snyder would have had to have made compromises and it would have been a compromised version of his vision. And that ties in exactly with how on earth do you think that DC are beginning to flower? Because they purposely butchered this film and definitely will not be making any more films with Zack Snyder, as far as I can tell. So I, I don't see how you think that this this second effort of like trying to undo the mistakes that the studio made proves that the studio are flowering. <laughs> Makes sense on uh, Jeff World. Yeah. No, 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 no. This has done wonders for HBO Max. They're putting it out on Blu-ray and HD shortly, and it's going to be one of the best sellers of all time, I think. And once that happens... I don't, I don't argue with that, but do you think Snyder's actually going to go, yeah, cool, I'll come back? <laughs> I think if they were give, if they allowed him to make what he wanted to make, yes, I think he would. The guy is a legend. I mean, you know. To be honest, though, Phil, I actually think that Marvel are now trying to poach him. I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> Based on what? <laughs> Based on to how do good what? this film is. Well, to make Marvel films that are good. They're already brilliant, Jeff, except in um, Jeff World. The, the um, biggest I... grossing film of all time. And you're saying that they need to basically up their is, game. Is, is Avatar, I think you'll find, Darren. Oh, yeah. They re-released oh, it in oh, China and its oh, grosses yeah. went up. The second and biggest grossing the film Zach, of all time. Uh, Okay, the second biggest grosser film of all time. But it wasn't that good, was it, really? I mean, let's be honest. <laughs> the first one was very good. The first one, as I said, the first one was very good. Infinity Wars was really good. But Endgame was like, you know, it's like, talk of it, it's like a board game, more like. Like any good martyr, I'll have my day. But do you do you know do you know why it why it became at one point the biggest grossing film of all time? It's because people like me went to see it about six or seven times. And the reason why people like me went to see it six or seven times is because they enjoyed it, because it gave them exactly what they wanted, so they kept going yeah. back. And that's why, which basically means mm. it was a success. You didn't like it, fair enough. It hit what people wanted. So why would Marvel ever want to mess with that? I think my only answer is I've seen Thank God It's Friday 20 times. <laughs> <laughs> Because you're a weirdo, that's why. Yeah. Planet Jeff must be a very strange place. What's odd, what's odd, though, is we did all like it, but we're arguing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But interesting you say you saw it six times, because I'll pass over to Neil on that uh, very subject. Before we leave this epic film that many thought would never be made, let's have a quick word from Elijah. Welcome back, Elijah. How are you doing, sir? I'm a little under the weather, but other than that, I'm doing OK. Yes, but those four words I think will perk you up. Zack Snyder's <laughs> Justice League. How many times have you seen it now? Uh, eight or nine times, something like that. Eight or nine times. <laughs> what? I need to make it an even ten here, so I'll probably watch it after this. So, dare I ask, what is your view? First, I've always been a fan of the Zack Snyder superhero films. Man of Steel, when it came out, was my favorite film that year. Not that it was the best film that came out that year, but it was my favorite. 
And when Batman v Superman came out, even though I I think the theatrical edition has a lot of flaws, I knew that it had been cut down, and I was hoping for a director's cut to smooth over everything, and I loved it, and I watched it three times in theaters. And uh, then the ultimate edition is just way better than, than the theatrical even. So I was super excited for Zack Snyder's Justice League. His his take on superheroes is so unique compared to the Marvel fare that we get. But yeah, I, I was hearing about some of the controversy and the, the drama behind the scenes. And I tried to, to think, you know, it couldn't be that bad. Joss Whedon isn't going to screw this up this bad. <laughs> okay. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and so then I watched it with my wife in theaters opening night. And uh, as soon as we got home, I was online <laughs> and I found a petition to release the Snyder Cut. And it, I don't think it was that that uh, name exactly, but I immediately signed it. So I have been looking forward to this film for years. I, I never thought that I'd see it. Yeah. I got to watch the live announcement that Snyder did. I barely got off work and immediately started the the stream. He was doing a live stream of Man of Steel commentary and all that. And so he gets off and he's talking to all these people on Vero. And then Henry Cavill comes up. And so they talk about it. You know, people were freaking out. And then he showed the poster for Zack Snyder's Justice League. My mind was blown for like three or four days after that. So I think it's fair to say you were pumped before you even sat down to watch the time one. I, think, I, I do think that's fair to say. So when it opened, I tried to get the day off so that I could watch it unencumbered, but I wasn't able to get the day off of the, the release. So uh, I woke up at 2 a.m. and watched it all in, in one shot on my iPad. Wow. That is impressive. It, it felt so satisfying to finally see it come to fruition after the fact that it was good. And if you've seen the Whedon cut, oh, my gosh. But even the things that were a little weird or off-putting, like the Norwegian folk song, nothing bothered me at all on my first watch. Yeah. Every time I thought something was going to bother me, it ended up working itself out. Even now, every time I watch it, I'm noticing something else, something new. You know, something that I thought was a plot hole. Oh, well, turns out it's not a plot hole. It was addressed earlier in the film. If you had to pick a couple of things that were major improvements over the Whedon cut. Uh, for one, it's four hours instead of two. We don't have Danny Elfman's score. And when Superman comes into play, I don't want to hear the Superman theme from John Williams in the 70s. I don't, I, that's not what I associate with the Superman. I want to hear the theme that Hans Zimmer wrote. And when that comes on, I mean, I may have, I may have teared up a little. That as well as uh, every character's backstory was so much better. Their interactions were so much better. L Lois felt like an actual character instead of, you know, just somebody who's chuckling at a thirsty joke. What about that ending, though? It's sort of open for a, a sequel that we hope will come, but you never know if it will. Yeah, I think Warner Brothers would kind of be stupid not to, but Warner Brothers also was also dumb enough to make the Whedon cut and take 30 minutes off of Batman v Superman, which may, took away most of the plot points that made it make sense. Yeah. And they're also the ones who ruined Suicide Squad because the director's cut was completely different. What about performances? I think this is going to be just yeah, what everyone's saying, but Ray Fisher as Cyborg. Yeah. Was just so, so good. Like the moment where his mom dies, right as you see the headlights coming, he reaches out and puts his hand out to try to protect her. And that's, you know, his arm that gets sliced off. 
And when his dad is about to die, he puts his hand out to try to save him and he can't. He is by far the most tragic character in the film. Ray Fisher just does a great job. Yeah. And, you know, he has the name Victor, which brings back memories of Victor Frankenstein as well. Summing it up overall, this is a daft question for me, really. I mean, clearly you really enjoyed it. But for somebody who's only watched the Whedon cut, what would you say to them to get them to watch it? It's a completely different film. It has several of the same plot elements, but as far as everything that happens to make that plot work, it's completely different. Everyone is shown in a different light. The score is fantastic. It's an epic in every sense of the word. Okay, well, you're here to hear from a big fan of the film. Two thumbs up, recommendation to watch it. Elijah, as always, it's a pleasure talking to you. Thanks, Elijah. That was the At The Flicks word on Justice League. Now let's go to the thriller, The Little Things. You're not exactly a department favourite. Things probably changed a lot since you left. You still got to catch him, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not that much has changed then, right? <laughs> I can assure you all we are taking a 24-7 all-hands-on-deck approach to these cases. Guy's a shark. If he stops, he dies. He likes to drive. Probably has a decent car, maybe two. High mileage. He must really like my car. I do. How's the trunk space? No, it's not a film referencing Gran. This is a detective. <laughs> this is a detective mystery, starring Denzel Washington and Remy Malik. Back in the 1990s, Deputy Sheriff Deke Deacon Washington has to return to his old stomping ground of Los Angeles to collect evidence. While there, he meets Detective Jimmy Baxter, Remy Malik, who is now working a case Deke was once attached to, a series of serial killer murders. Murders that have haunted Deke for years. Together, the two form an unlikely partnership to try and find the killer. Graham, The Little Things, has a pedigree cast and writer-director, It should be first-rate entertainment, is it? You can stand up to answer this. Oh, sorry, you already are. (laughs) Thank you, Gimli. Right, Okay. (laughs) Sorry, that was was aimed at Jeff. Right. Small, bearded, aggressive person, yeah. My one-line review would be, yeah, might have the big things like star power, but it's still the little things like not rushing the finale that really counts. And this was such a frustrating watch. Great stars, great performances, wonderful camera work, good music, pacing was perfect, had the elements of a Christopher Nolan's insomnia mixed with a bit of Zodiac and Seven. Yes, it was that good. Then in the last 20 minutes, the director, who'd been building it up for a big reveal, let the entire thing fall like a drunk trying to play a game of Jenga. He was trying to remove that difficult last block, but ended up falling into the tower. And just like that, Jenga Tower, this film lay in a big, messy pile at the end. I just got so cross with this. It was screaming at the telly, FFS. You had it all, dude, and then you ended up here. Really? It was just what a waste of talent, waste of money, and most of all, waste of my time. The first two acts are five-star, and the third act, I thought, was 
minus nine stars, giving the entire movie a one-star rating. I don't understand why the studio didn't bring in Josh Whedon to reshoot the final act. Oh, hang on. No, I just <laughs> hated it. Well, it could have been worse. They could have handed over to Kevin Feige. Um, <laughs> yeah, oh, it, it was interesting. About halfway through, you phoned me up and said, what's the problem? This movie's great. Yeah. <laughs> I did. I did. Yeah, and it was. I was. I thought, why are people slagging this off? It's amazing. It's really dark and moody and brooding, and oh, Denzel's really delivering great, great presence on on screen. I thought Malik was just sort of this weirdo, and I thought the cop it's just too big for him, and it's all going to blow up, and nothing happened. Darren. I mean, this just felt like somebody was saying, well, it's 25 years ago since we made films like Seven and all those really dark, murky um, crime movies. So how about we try and make those again? And it just left me cold. It was pulpy full of it seemed to be taking itself really, really seriously, but it just didn't have anything interesting or new to, to justify it. I mean, the thing is, look, Denzel Washington is... Even when he's on autopilot, he's got that charisma that sort of like you know makes him you know just completely watchable. Melnick was was I thought was good in it, but they just didn't tell a, you know a, a great deal to 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 work with, and I, I I couldn't get any chemistry between them. I wasn't engaged at all. And and Gerard Leto, who I used to like, I think late I think for for years now, he's just gone really. Weird and over the top in his performances, and it, and it's got it's got to a trope now. But he's got to play these like really spooky, out of it characters, and trying to have this sort of like really sort of deep depth about him. And he's just becoming cringy at this point. And uh, you know, he was trying to have a Charles Manson spooky figure, and it's just it was just I just couldn't get into this at all. And and it's a shame because I actually like the idea of of crime films being set in the 90s. Because for a start, I think there's, there's a lot more interesting that you can do with them because this this was an age before, like, forensics and computer science and all this sort of, like, you know, you, you didn't have those shortcuts that you get in a lot of films nowadays with, with those sort of things. And there was a lot more mystery about them from that from that period but it just felt to me like it was it was um, just trying too much to be dark well it's probably worth having a go with it once it comes like on streaming for free it's not worth you know showing out the rental for it at all okay it's interesting you said about seven because this was written around about the same time that seven was written yeah it definitely had a, a big seven vibe and zodiac as well i thought Okay. Um, before we go on, uh, it's a little spoiler alert. I am going to mention something that happens later on in the film. You can go forward a few minutes, but if you do, you miss out on the wonderful review I'm about to give. Sorry, skipping, <laughs> skipping Jeff was never that bad, right? <laughs> so, here's the thing. The Little Thing stars one of my favourite actors working today, being Denzel Washington, as my favourite living film composer in Thomas Newman. A director, Hancock, who's made one of the best films of the last decade, being the founder. And it has a strong supporting cast. So, and I've got to agree with my other reviewers, why is it so unsatisfying? And I think, and both have touched on this as well, is John Hancock's script is ill-defined and inconsistent. It's supposed to go into a sort of horror-thriller vibe, but its tone meanders, and the conclusion is, so what? 
rather than the chilling effect mm. he was trying to get. I do think blame must be handed out to the actors who just don't seem engaged, other than one. I'll touch on him in a minute. But Washington and Malik have characters who are not fleshed out. Washington is, as Darren said, just running on autopilot and just seems to be cliched. Jared Leto, and I do disagree with you on this one, Darren, I thought he was really good, but clearly the bad guy from Appearance 1. The twists with this character should all be shocking, and it should leave you with a line that's almost thrown away near the beginning of the film, where they say he came in and confessed the crimes before. So there's this doubt that they should put in your mind that he may not be the killer. As you go on and this thing starts to fall apart, the only shocking thing is the sudden manner of his demise. Hmm. Now, let's turn to the good thing. That's the inconsistent and what doesn't work. The good thing is, of all that I said at the beginning, is Thomas Newman. He really delivers, I think, his main title music is is excellent, and it builds and builds um, throughout, and in the climax, his score is fantastic. So, the little things. I mean, ultimately... Even the title has little meaning when it comes to the end. If that cover-up is what they call little, then, you know, personally, I'm, as a police support worker, trying to get a taser at the moment. That should be a little thing. I should have a taser because at least I can tell the difference between a taser and a gun. And on that note, over to you, Neil. Can't help us if you have a taser. Um, Like Darren, I thought this was just seven, but then I... Which I have watched, by the way, before anybody asks, and I won't be watching again, and nor will I be watching this one again. Remy Malek is, is intelligent, and Jared Leto's scary, and Denzel's brooding. It's a film about the nature of obsession based around a cop with a, an unsolved case and a potential killer. I even thought at one point that maybe it was uh, Denzel Washington's character who was the killer. And he was all covering it up, but then thought, oh, don't be so silly, it's not that good. <laughs> it just feels flat and boring, as everybody said, and even Denzel couldn't solve this film. And the last act is terrible. So, move on. <laughs> OK, well, thank you for that succinct review there, Neil. I think the first thing I'll say, actually, is I think from listening to you all, I like this film a lot more than any of you did, but I still thought it was quite <laughs> flat. Um so I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I thought it was a really intricate, old-fashioned detective story with multiple threads and that they all drew together reasonably satisfactorily at the end, if not amazingly. I thought it was really engrossing and I was interested and I was intrigued. It doesn't excel above anything else. Ultimately, I think that the ending was like a big swing for something really profound. Mm. And it just didn't hit at all. It was like a massive strikeout. And I think all of you guys have mentioned the reasons why. I guess maybe give them some plaudits for trying, I suppose. But the interesting bit, I think, is um, we all have massively different opinions of how the actors did in this. So um, I thought Denzel Washington was really great as Mm. the world-weary detective. And obviously, like Jeff, and I think um, Neil said they were on, he was on autopilot, whereas I thought that Jared Leto was just so on the nose and so unbelievable and just like, really? Like, this isn't a comic book film now, Jared. This is like a dark, moody detective thriller. 
please give us something like more believable next time. That would be my note. It was just a bit flat. The little things. We weren't sold on this video on demand feature. So you might be best saving your money for other movies. Let's hope we have better luck with Palm Springs. It's going to be a beautiful wedding. Here you are, standing on the precipice of something so much bigger than anyone here. But always remember, you are not alone. I don't think that we met. I'm Sarah. Niles. Hi. Hi. It's going to be a beautiful wedding. Guess you followed me. It's one of those infinite time loop situations you might have heard about. That I might have heard about. Yeah. Niles, Andy Sandberg, and his girlfriend, Misty, Meredith Hanger, are in Palm Springs to attend a friend's wedding. However, Niles seems disinterested and also has a strange ability to predict events before they happen. The reason? Niles is stuck in a time loop doomed to repeat the day over and over again. On this particular reliving of the day, he meets wedding guest Sarah, Christine Miliotti, and accidentally brings her into the time loop with him. Together, can they find a way out of this repetitive nightmare? This sounds like a riff on Groundhog Day to me. Let's ask Neil, a man for whom every golf game seems repetitive. Kind of, but it, it, it appears like Groundhog Day at first and then sort of goes off in a completely different direction. It's more like an Edge of Tomorrow-style rom-com. Mm. This is a really fun film. Andy Samberg is, I'm sure, an acquired taste, but in this he is perfect. A deep, deeply cynical detective Peralta. Christian Miliotti is wonderful, brilliant, and they work so well together. J.K. Simmons is terrifying. This film <laughs> is a joy to watch. We get the 2D image, and as in more of the details get revealed, the film gets better and better, and we get the whole details. Fantastic, very clever. Uh, the cinematographer takes the bright colours on show and just unsaturates the whole thing. Max Berbikov, the director, keeps it moving, and Andy, C- Andy Ciara's script is witty, clever, and excellent. It's really fun. And Sandberg and Miliotti are comfortable with all of it. It really works. Um, I really need to watch this again and again. Um, I really should have watched it at least three times to understand the full details of it. But, no, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Okay, spoiler alert, people. You might want to go forward a couple of minutes while I ask this question of Neil. What about the dinosaurs? Yeah, I I didn't really sort of understand that bit. That's why I need to watch it again. They're taking mushrooms. Uh, That works for the first time they see it, but not the second time, because they don't see the dinosaurs. Only we, the viewer, do at the end. Uh, My my theory is that the dinosaurs ran in there to avoid the meteorite, and they've been living in a time loop for 65 million years. Except oh, just reliving the day out and day and day and head. I think that's a good show. Yeah. Uh, I'm not convinced. The, the problem with this is he at one point says, oh, that's new, as he sees the dinosaurs for the first time. Hmm. Yeah, well, maybe he's just not come across them. It's possible. That's one answer for it. Yeah. Unless he says that every single day. Phil! Um, this film is absolutely amazing. I feel it's my job to shout it from the rooftops. 
I'm going to overhype it massively and you're going to watch it and you're going to be really underwhelmed. <laughs> but watch it again because it's amazing. I have seen it three times, Neil, and it does just get better and better. Uh, and there's noted. so many extra things to pick up on. I think the fact that when we join the film, Niles has seemingly been in that loop for years is brilliant. Um, the writer, Andy Sierra, or Sierra, I'm not sure how to pronounce that, sorry, Andy, um, he seems to have thought about every possible thing that someone might do with infinite time. And then whilst he doesn't show us all of those things, he tries to embed that knowledge and world weariness into every line. And every time I watch it, I kind of get something new out of a line and a delivery. Um, and I just think it's really good. It's laugh out loud funny. It's romantic. It's philosophical. It's dark. And it's also ridiculous. The chemistry between Sandberg and Miliotti is fantastic. They're both exceptional. They're both like nihilistic and hopeful and in love and not, and and they just do it really well. J.K. Simmons has a really great supporting role, and the way he's introduced for the very first time in the film is a complete, oh, my God, what is happening moment, and I chuckle <laughs> just thinking about it. You just have to watch it, um, and whilst you're there, I haven't mentioned it already, I'm sure, but Andy Samberg has made another comic genius film, which is called Popstar, Never Stop, Never Stopping. And that's really good as well. <laughs> oh, hang on, let me write that one down. Yes, yeah. I wrote it down when you said the quiz, so I'll write it down again. <laughs> again. It, it it might work if I liked Andy Samberg, I don't. Um, <laughs> but I, I do agree with you. Christiane Maliotti is absolutely brilliant. Yeah. I think she steals the film. Yes. The the way her character goes from couldn't care less in the beginning to to starting to care to the one of the two of them that wants to find a way out of the trap that they're in. Just an incredible performance. I've not seen her in anything before, but I will be watching out oh, for yeah. her in future. Graham. This is the perfect lockdown film. Because during lockdown, this movie really resonates. I mean, waking up every morning and thinking... It's the same bloody day over and over again. This was really brilliant. I mean, Sundance Festival history was made when Hulu paid $22 million to buy Palm Springs, a romantic wedding comedy with a Groundhog Day twist that is actually a load of fun. I roared at this, not only at the comedy moments, but the fact that it was just so clever. I mean, I really like Excuse liked... me, Graham, cutting into your review. Yeah. I, I do believe you give up watching it the first time. Yeah, but I was not in the mood. I, I started and I thought, is this a rom-com? Because as everybody knows, I don't like rom-coms. And I I went and I thought, oh, I'll watch it later. And then you said, no, 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 watch it. It's really good. And I said, yeah, it's a rom-com though. And then you get past and you meet the main character. And then I actually have to wind back and watch the first bit again because there was lots and lots of things I missed, and I have watched it twice now. It's one of those. The first 10 minutes are a bit, mm, and it looks as though it's going down this, this standard rom-com route, but it really doesn't go there. I really like the two leads, and as Phil has said, they've got incredible chemistry, the two of them, uh, and the endless wake up in the separate bedrooms with people who are cheating and then get together, then flirt, then die, then do it all again. It was so well played and they brought in lots of side characters so it didn't get boring. 
and at times the live die repeat was more of a wily e. coyote and roadrunner than groundhog day i just loved it it started well once i'd watched it again but it accelerates away to a wonderful finale and to any rom-com fans who are thinking this sounds a little too weird for me don't worry it has the three essential elements girl meets boy girl loses boy girl finds boy again and they live happily ever after so you don't have to worry only in this film it's girl meets boys and tries to have sex with him but gets pulled into a quantum time vortex girl loses boy because she gets hit by a truck and then girl finds boy as they agree to a suicide pact kill a goat and live happily ever tomorrow so it's <laughs> great stuff i just loved it and when i went back the second time there were so many things i hadn't spotted like the film starts with the goat. The music is Demis Roussos' song Forever and Ever. And it ends ah. with Hole and Oates singing When Tomorrow Morning Comes or When the Morning Comes. <laughs> and it's just great. It's just great. And I was talking to Jeff this afternoon and I was saying that when it first starts, Niall is making a margarita. But as it goes on, he puts less mixers in until at the end he's just putting straight tequila in and just drinking the tequila straight. So it just, you know, as he unwinds through the film, it's just fantastic. One of the best films I've seen this year. I've got to say, I went into this film knowing absolutely nothing about it. And from the poster, literally the only thing I saw was the poster. And I just assumed this was some sort of, you know, rom-com comedy. And so... I think this is the best, sadly we've spoiled it for everybody who hasn't seen it now, but I think that's the best way to see this one because it just takes an absolute turn. And there are little clues along the way with Adam Sandberg's little things that he says of, of where this might be going, but you don't really pick them up if you watch it a second time. And and so I, I was like, you know, really surprised that I got this sort of sci-fi type movie. And I think it's a shame now that this, um, that any of these sort of, you know, repeat day type movies get, um, get compared to Groundhog Day as if they're almost like Groundhog Day clones because this this does things a, a hell of a lot differently. Um, you know, with Groundhog Day, which I love, by the way, and um, Happy Death Day, it's got the idea of sort of that you, you have the same day again and again and eventually you become a nice person sort of thing. But, you know, whereas this one was, you know, very different. It was kind of like a, a little um, a philosophical, you know, you know, theme going on there about you know, if you could sort of live the same day again and again and have the sort of freedom that that you basically had no consequences, you could basically practically be immortal and have sort of like, you know, just do whatever you wanted and experience anything wanted and then go back and start again the next day and, and just have no sort of consequences. But also you get no rewards either. I think that was the thing by having two mm. people in there that they basically you had these 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 two people with with wonderful chemistry who got on who enjoyed it, but at some point they have to sort of you know if if their sort of like you know relationship's going to thrive they have to sort of take the next day and take a risk. I mean, but, but one of the things is as the J.K. Simmons character you know for for the uh, you know for the adam sandberg character he basically had you know this was almost to me i got the impression this was like a dream for him because he could you know just mm. do whatever he wanted in life but for jk simmons this was a nightmare he wasn't able to you know see his kids grow 
and that's what sent him off the deep end and why he went on this you know, revenge pact. And it's that sort of thing. Of, do you live a life of basically sort of, of, of comfort and knowing what's coming? Or do you go out there and do you take a risk? Again, this this was probably one of my favourite films of, of the year so far. I am going to say a couple of things that are spoilerish, so you might want to skip over. Or alternatively, if you're in one of these alternate reality, just listen to my review forever. It's pretty good. Um, now, I do love these time repeat movies, and the reason I like them is they have to be tightly scripted to work. You look at Groundhog Day, which has already been mentioned, and Edge of Tomorrow, but also add to that the two Happy Death Day films. And now you can add Palm Springs into it. I agree with everybody else. It is a great film. In a sense, it's a spiritual sequel to Groundhog Day. Imagine if Bill Murray hadn't been able to get out at the end of that film and he'd be stuck in this and become even more bitter and nihilistic. That's the Andy Samberg character. Now, I don't normally like Andy Samberg. I think the only thing prior to this he's done that's any good was season one of the BBC TV series Cuckoo. Everything else he's done is rubbish because he can't act. Um, but here he's quite good. Outrageous. <laughs> he channels his inner Adam Sandler by bringing in that repressed rage and sweetness. However, he's well supported by both Christian Milioti and J.K. Simmons. They are the real heart of this film. They're both incredible. And I love the moment with J.K. Simmons obviously both stuck in the time loop, as they said. They visited him in the garden, oh, and brilliant. his daughter, daughter's on a rocking horse, which is a, a toy that never moves anywhere, and his son's watering dog shit, something that will never grow. So, again, it's a little time loop within itself. <laughs> um, and the other thing I liked about this film is it sparked such debate on the internet. I mean, I looked around, and this question's like, how long has he been trapped? Are the other guests trapped? What on earth are the dinosaurs doing here? And do they really escape? Doesn't matter, because you can have great fun adding this in. And I'm sure, Phil, you say you've seen it three times. Mm. You've probably come up with different conclusions to different aspects of that story each time you've gone through it. Yeah, I, def I definitely think there's one other guest who's trapped. We can talk off the air on that one. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. I, I would say... Well, I had two, three more that I saw. But again, that's part of the pleasure of this film. It's such a clever script. It's so well written that you see little things every time you go through it. Like the theme itself, this film will enrich and reward on repeated viewings. If it wasn't for the amazing Justice League, this would have been my film of the month. Perhaps this film would have been better if Zack Snyder had directed it. God, <laughs> oh, here we go. Which scenes would have warranted slow motion? <laughs> yeah. The the dinosaurs. Neil. So that's our thoughts on the Amazon Prime film Palm Springs. I'll repeat the Amazon Prime film Palm Springs. If you haven't watched it, please watch it. Let's go back in time for our next feature, Six Minutes to Midnight. You come recommended by an agency. Not of different schools, I see. Thank you. That wasn't a compliment. They are the daughters of the Nazi High Command. As soon as there's movement, we'll take the school. England can be an unforgiving place if you happen to be German. This country is at war with Germany. Germany can't afford the girls to be captured. Can you assure me you haven't been compromised? 
My girls are not the enemy. They're German, aren't they? August 1939, when a teacher at the Augusta Victoria College in Bexhill-on-Sea disappears, alarm bells sound in the British Secret Service. You see, the school caters for the daughters of high-ranking Nazi officers, and that teacher was an undercover spy. Agent Thomas Mitchell, Eddie Izzard, is the next spy to be sent into the establishment to find out what's going on. What he discovers on the eve of World War II puts his life in grave danger. Sounds like an exciting boy's own style adventure. Is that how it all comes across, Jeff? Well, it wants to be that. Mm. Instead, I think it's one of these Lovey's Sunday afternoon movies with all the good and bad that entails. And can you imagine the meeting that went on between Eddie Izzard, who knows if he was male or female that day, and <laughs> Cillian... Oh, <laughs> Jesus, wept. I think we You saw this coming, surely. I did, yeah. <sighs> I just wondered when it was going to come out, really. Yeah. Okay. And, and Cillian Jones, uh, and when they come up with the plot of the film. Yeah, you can imagine it. It, it was like... We need one of those fringe on the eve of war stories. Can't be too violent because we've got to appeal to the Downton Abbey crowd. Of course, we have to cast our Judy. The oldies love that. Let's bring in Jim Broadbent. What do you mean we've got no role for him? Damn, I know. We'll make him the cheery bus driver. A bit like that transport role he had in Breaking Glass. Bet not mention that for the lovies. And so we've got the great actors in there. Well... We've got to put a spitfire in. The Brexiteer types who watch this sort of film will love it. They'll flock to it. It's going to be a winner. And, of course, it doesn't quite work. The reason is it has a really nice setup, even on the low budget. It clearly is working under. The initial mystery is quite set up. Mm. Uh, the performances are quite good. Uh, it's good to see Ed- Eddie Izzard in men's clothing, because that's how it should be. Um, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> And and all of that mystery is really first rate, but it's the last third where it tends to fall apart. You know that it's like it's really badly edited. There's a moment where Eddie Izzard escapes out of the school, and one minute he's in the room with them, and the next minute he's half a mile away from them. <laughs> and just who is Jim Broadbent trying to play? I think there was a lot more to that role, but it's been cut out. He wasn't a cheery Cockney bus driver. I think he also was part of the spy network, but that went. Now, James Darcy, again in another underwritten role, is very good. And I think that character is a reflection of the upper classes of that time and their almost natural support of Hitler. But ultimately, this falls short. And I think the irony of what I've been saying is this will ultimately find its home on BBC on a Sunday afternoon when the Brexit supporting oldies, if they're still around, unfortunately, can watch it and wave their flags as they remember a past that wasn't quite as they wanted to be, just like this film. Darren, over to you. Okay, so first I just want to say that this, at times, that this film looked absolutely gorgeous. Um, I can't remember a Mm. film that I've seen for ages that had such postcard-esque pictures of the scenes of the set on the coast and these long, lovely wide shots of the um, pier and all this this stuff. So I thought it was absolutely wonderful. And it also had some of the the best framing of of the scenes I've seen in films in a long time. Just really interesting stuff like the scene where they find a body and 
there's Eddie's uh, on one side of the film and the kids on the other. Just really, in, not done in a showing off way, but just really interestingly shot films. I was, you know, I was, I was really enjoying that sort of thing of it. And I've got to say that initially the story I was actually, you know, really into the whole, I, the whole idea of this, like this Nazi aristocrat school. Uh, on British soil, I found absolutely fascinating, and I'm and I am really interested in all these like re, you know these hidden and secret histories that have been sort of like that we sort of you know lost sight of you know throughout the years. And I was re- like really into the story of Eddie Izzard as you know as a school teacher, you know, getting more in, in, into his class and seeing the Nazi salute, seeing the teacher also you know wonder which way is she and, and why this school is actually here. And I was really fascinated about, about this story. I mean, it suddenly took this just massive turn into like a like a Jean Le Carrier spy thriller, you know, with these sort of you know these action scenes and ideas are going on the run and being you know going into hiding and this sort of you know conspiracy. What's going on? And I was fine with it for a time because I was actually quite sort of enjoying the way that story was being told. But then I sort of started to realise that the story initially that I'd been into, that had been building quite nicely, you know, was just being like, you know, tossed to one side. There was a storyline going on with one of the girls who seemed to be a little bit of an outcast and the story of, of, of these girls, you know, why were they actually there? That just got up completely pushed to one side, just in favour of this sort of more spy action thriller. And it never really got back to that. And I, and I found that a re- it was almost like those like two films that were just sort of halfway through, we just sort of decided to to, to go on a, a completely different tangent. And, and towards the end with the finale, everything, I, I found myself wondering, you know, there's this big thing and we've got to stop them sort of, you know, getting on this plane and everything. And I was just thinking, well, why not just let them go? You know, just just let them go home. You know, what is the point of trying to keep them in in this country? And and, and just, I just found myself sort of like getting like you know really confused about whose side I was meant to be on and and why and everything. Maybe I just sort of completely missed something. One of these things about these films is there's always like a, just before the credits, there's always like a um, like, like, like it tells you basically what happened. To, to the characters afterwards, you know, and, and in this, he just basically mentioned that this school was like the last of its kind. He never really mentioned what happened to the girls or, or, or anything like that. It, it was no real intrigue. I just, I just feel like there was like a really interesting, fascinating story here that they sacrificed to make a spy thriller. And I, and I just found it re- really odd. And I was just sort of, you know, left bemused. You know, really, really in a really confused state when I actually um, finished with the film. I don't really know what it was actually trying to get at. Um, do you know where uh, Eddie Izzard got the idea for this film from? He was uh, brought up in Bexhill on Sea, and um, he started uh, looking around because Bexhill was full of these sort of schools, and uh, he worked with the histor- local historian um to uncover all the details which is such a shame because the film just doesn't work but yeah it's um it's it's the Oscar August Victoria College for Nazi the, the daughters of the Nazi elite was actually a true story just such a shame and speaking of Gestapo and Nazi elite over to you Graham <laughs> thanks yeah <laughs> I mean I'm a big Eddie Izzard fan and even I was bored. Uh, I mean, I'm sure there's a good version of this movie on the cutting room floor, and I think everyone's said it. 
it's a very interesting story. The first act is engaging and all the characters were introduced and their roles established. And unlike Darren, you know, there was a couple of the girls and I thought, oh, that's really interesting. I bet that's going to come out and that's going to be quite interesting. And the, the timid little girl who they half-heartedly took the mickey out of but didn't push it and I was thinking oh she's probably somebody really high up in the Nazi party's daughter and that's why they're they're sort of torn and I thought oh that's going to be really good and then there was the whole thing about what had the first teacher got hidden in the library that was so important but then it just turned into this chase movie and it just went completely flat and to use an Eddie Izzard line from his comedy show, it deflated like a flan in a cupboard. And uh, <laughs> it was just, it it just didn't work. I mean, no. after the f- first 30 minutes, were just were really, really good. I just was wishing for it to end. And uh, I, I watched this with my wife because I thought, you know, we're oldies, as Jeff keeps saying, you know. And we sat down and we watched it. And usually when a film's over, we sit and chat about it for about... 30 minutes afterwards what do you think of that and what do you think of that character and came to the end and my wife just turned to me and said i wonder if we've got any of those custard creams left to go with our (laughs) cup of tea and that's and because we'd already forgotten it as the titles were rolling up just what what a wasted opportunity i just couldn't get over this film it was just so poor so poor great story great idea good actors nothing happened were there so, any crusted creams? Yes, we oh, actually good. had a... Oh, thank, uh, yes. thank goodness for that. Yeah. So, <laughs> crisis averted. Yeah. So Dame Judy's sex appeal didn't work for you then? Uh, no, no, no. I was more interested in the custard cream. <laughs> Can I just add, before we go on to Phil, my wife thought this film was really good and she hated Palm Springs. I'm <laughs> just putting that out there. And as I say that, I'll hand over to Phil. <laughs> Thanks. Um, yeah, I mean, this film didn't really work for me on any level. Darren and Graham have both mentioned it. It's a fascinating true story, but I didn't really get any sense of that story. Like, And I, I, like Darren, was waiting for the write-up at the end, and it literally told me nothing. So I'm not entirely sure what part of this based on a true story is really a true story other than the school existed. Eddie Izzard just did not work for me as this action hero spy. Every time she started running, I just started thinking all of her charity work running marathons, as opposed to thinking she was a believable British intelligent agent. She, you she keep saying she. <laughs> yes, That's I the right pronoun. Okay. <sighs> Jeff. <laughs> Go back um, in your 1970s cupboard. Judy Dench's performance is another awful, unengaged what? mess. Um, just like Blythe Spirit and oh, Cats, yeah, which bad. are the... Cats is great. I love Cats. <laughs> I'll give you Blythe Spirit, but Cats is a fantastic film. The only person in the Western world who believes that. OK. Sorry, um, But also, her character is so ridiculously naive, I just couldn't suspend my disbelief that that could be possible. She was just... It was just bonkers. She was just like, oh, it's all going to be fine. Um <laughs> And then there was this other school teacher played by Carla Jury, who, like in one scene, she was like a stooge who seemed unsure about her role. And in another scene, she's like a complete monster, like the the best Nazi in the world kind of thing. And I, and I didn't understand what was going on there. 
And the same can be said of those girls. And I think I think Darren and Graham both mentioned this. There's one girl who's like the evil Nazi and the other one who's being manipulated by propaganda. And I thought, you know, oh, something's going to come of mm. any of those plot points and just nothing comes of any of those plot points. And Eddie Izzard just does a bit more running. It just seemed really all over the place. And my mother-in-law, who never talks to me about films, just a couple of weeks after this came out, we're in an outdoors barbecue, because you're allowed to do that now. And she said to me, oh, did you see uh, Six Minutes to Midnight? And I went, yes. And before I could get another word out, she went, it was rubbish, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Oldies don't necessarily like it, Jeff. <laughs> yeah, at least Eddie Izzard running flat shoes. Um <laughs> And speaking of Eddie Izzard, let's go over to our version, Neil. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure there's a good film here. This, does, as we said before, it's a true story, and this sort of it tries to be this own boy's own hero film, but it fails at that. I don't believe the whole sort of bit at the end. The the last act was just terrible. Them escaping on a plane. I don't think that ever happened. I think they tried to put something exciting in and it just doesn't work. It's disjointed, slow. It's kind of boring. And this is, and, and I'm not going to go on for long because everybody said exactly what I think. Um, it's This is Sky Movies again. I, I, I don't know how many months we've had to put Sky Movies films in because we're, we're really short of films. But they've all been slated by us, and they're not good. Sorry, Sky, please keep showing Chelsea games. So Six Minutes of Midnight is available on Sky and Now TV. And I would repeat, my wife really liked this film. Uh, for our final review of the month, let's turn Private Eye with The Kid Detective. I used to be loved. I used to be a kid detective. We're all really counting on you. I was so far ahead of the game. Somebody murdered my boyfriend. Seriously? Pretty seriously. He was stabbed 17 times. Is it possible he was involved in drugs? No, he would never do drugs. Gambling? No, he would never gamble. Demon worship? No, he would never worship a demon. Here comes the kid detective. <laughs> Someone's following us. This isn't safe. They're trying to see how my head works. Somebody's testing me. Abe Applebaum, Adam Brody, is the kid detective, a teenager famed in his town for being able to solve all mysteries. That is until his close friend, Gracie Gulliver, Caitlin Chambers Rosato, disappears and Abe is unable to work out what happened. 18 years later, our rundown Abe is now in charge of a rundown detective agency trying to solve small-time crimes. Then high school student Carolyn, Sophie Nelise, hires him to find out who murdered her boyfriend. Abe suddenly finds himself in over his head. Will his old skills return to help him? I like a good detective. Darren, how does this compare to Philip Marlowe's Sam Spain detective classics? I mean, this it's obviously a modern-day telling of those sort of stories because the you know the things about those hard-boiled characters is that there were always um, these haunted people basically outcasts from sort of you know regular society and, do, and doing this job and you know in a very setting like with murky people in a setting of a very murky world so there were sort of comparisons there 
what I enjoyed a lot about this film, and I really did enjoy this film, is it had mm. a great, really compelling mystery that paid off with one of the most shocking revelations I've seen in a film in, in ages. And it did also to, you know, work and come together. To me, the, the, the whole crux of the film was about sort of the optimism of being a child and sort of, you know, and seeing the world through those eyes and then the sort of reality of basically sort of thought, you know, be, being an adult and not being able to sort of, you know, to live up to your, you know, your, your potential of your past glories. I mean, the fact that the town was sort of, you know, looked nice and vibrant at the start and by the time he got older, it had become run down. And he, he himself, you know, he, he was somebody of, of, of so much promise and he was sort of left to, uh, you know, to borrow money off his parents to keep his detective um, agency going. And and just little things like, for example, the fact that, you know, the stuff that he did as a kid that was sort of seen as um, adorable. For example, he, um, he, he solves one case and gets ice cream for, uh, you know, for the rest of his life. And at first it's, you know, this is great for a kid, but then it shows that, he, you know, as an adult, he's still going in and claiming the same ice cream, you know. And, and also the, um, there's a scene where he's, uh, as a kid, he's hiding in a closet and the people's house find him and go, oh, isn't that adorable and funny? And obviously later on he has to hide in a closet again. And obviously because he's an adult, this takes on a different connotation, a creepy connotation. So I think there was, uh, you know, a lot going on, on with, you know, within there. But I think you know, it was a, a really funny film. Um, I've seen, I've seen this sort of thing, you know, doing a, a an old school hardball, but with like a kids setting in, you know, in better in other films. For example, Brick, which I, I really enjoyed. I, th- I think that did it sort of a bit more intense, a bit, a bit, a bit better. But yeah, but I, I thought this film was was great. There was some great stuff going on between him and his secretary. Some really funny stuff, and I thought it, it was funny as well. But the, the the young girl that he sort of partners up with, it, she it showed up that he wasn't that great a detective at times. So, for example, she spotted that they were being followed that he never did. Just like the little things like that that I thought were sort of you know quite interesting little quirks. But yeah, I, I thought this was a, a really funny film, a very downbeat. You know, but but still sort of engaging, entertaining. But yeah, I, I really did enjoy this one. What do you think of Adam Brody's performance, Dan? I, I thought it was re- re- you know really good. I think I think one of the things that I, I liked about it is um, it, it was very expressive. All lots of times when he wasn't actually sort of you know doing a lot of uh, a dialogue that he had to work with. He just had to sort of you know uh, you know try and express his sort of his his weariness with the world. You know the way he slouched about and things like that. So I think he conveyed the you know he, he really lived that character very well. And I think the, the final scene where spoiler he basically just sits down and just starts crying because of the whole sort of magnitude of everything that's that's got on it. It's almost I, I took it as an almost like a you know what next type thing. You know that this sort of it's basically solved the case that had always been sort of like. You know, Ned niggled him throughout his life. It, it got through his thing, and it was almost like it. They hadn't so. You know, it, he wasn't still wasn't able to put it in the past and move on. Phil. So this is the second film. I really feel I need to champion tonight, and and third, if you count Pop Star, Never Stop, Never Stopping. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'll just write that down. <laughs> Again. So this is a really engrossing <laughs> mystery. It's filled with stories of arrested development. It's got some really fun humour and it's got some really dark moments. Darren's beat me to it, but special mention really has to go to the juxtaposition of doing something as a kid, being cute, 
and doing something as an adult being incredibly creepy to brilliant comic effect. Those those moments are just so funny. I think Adam Brody is outstanding as the man coming to terms with the fact that he just isn't that good at his job and he needs to get his life together. But equally, the film expertly explains why he's frozen in time and why he hasn't grown up. There's a brilliant flashback sequence that sets up the history and the film itself is a great tightrope walk between hard-boiled detective noir and humorous fun. And it did really remind me of The Long Goodbye in Chinatown, but this time it's a washed-up child genius as your hard-boiled detective. Definitely a must-watch along with Palm Springs this month. Do you think the mystery worked? Do you think that the story... Obviously, there's a lot of it, as you say, and, and as Darren said, it's a character piece about him. But there is a central mystery. And do you think that mystery worked? Yeah, I, I do. I really do. I think it really comes together when it kind of does that, that final sort of like everything comes together moment. I think the penny drops. And actually, it's one of those things where you go, I, all the information was there. Everything that you you know you kind of needed to see was there. And I'm sure if you watched it again you'd be absolutely certain that that was the, the right ending. You mentioned the flashbacks. I, I really thought the flashbacks were done so well because they were always very bright and oversaturated colours mm. as if that's the way you remembered them. And yet when he came back into the real world, it was very noir and the colours were leached out of each shot. And, yeah. you know, he, he would do very Sam Spade or Marlowe things like he would go to go in his office and his secretary say, there's a woman in there. You know, you know, <laughs> Did you get like her that. name? No. Uh, no, exactly, which is just pure Marla. I thought those bits going back to that point was great. And the fact that he, when he was asked at that terrible dinner table, you know, well, have you done any work? And he said, I've solved over 300 mysteries, not cases, because mysteries are what mysteries. kids solve. Yeah. You know, cases are what adults solve. So, the, the play on words, the way it was filmed, everything was just wonderful. Yeah, I mean, this, yeah, the guys have said it, it's compelling and interesting. There's twists and turns, and a very dark humour, and it's way better than the small numbers watching it would suggest. I think this needs to be watched, this one. And I love the fact that it's a um, precocious youngster becoming the drunk adult rather than the jock becoming the... It's so obvious, that one. This precocious kid is fantastic, and obviously he's not getting it all right. He has no faith in his ability, and, and, and nor do we, to be honest. And as the film goes on, the joy of the film is Brody, so it's slowly regaining his confidence. And the final twist shocked me. And a, a shout-out for the the small town thing where he's walking along the street when he's a kid... All the, the people walking past and the shopkeepers are going, hi, Abe, hi, Abe, hi, Abe. When he, uh, um, he's the, the drunk and completely at his uh, at rock bottom, everybody ignores him, just glares at him. And then he gets caught in um, hiding, trying to hide because he's obviously broken into somewhere and somebody's come in and everybody's going, pedo. Pedo, and then it's hi Abe again. <laughs> yeah, and finish. Uh, this, yeah, absolutely brilliant. I loved it. All those points through his life were just, you know, the people on the street recognize him. But I still think the thing that came out to me was that his entire life is a lie. He'd been yes. manipulated from childhood, and I mean the emotional breakdown at the end. Yeah, it was just perfect. 
absolutely i didn't see it coming and it just no. it just blew me away might as well continue graham no i was just going to say i also wanted to know why the characters had the first letter of their first and second name was the same are they actually secret superheroes like bruce banner or reed richards or sue storm or stephen strange or otto Ox- hey, sam, sam spade yes sam spade or my favorite j jonah jameson jr <laughs> gracie gulliver I'm sorry I nodded off then. Um, (laughs) You were saying for your review, Graham. I've said everything I want to say about this. This is a great, great film, and I definitely a double bill with Palm Springs. Great, wonderful. I thought that the whole plotting, everything, the comedy was great. Well, from my perspective, despite its title, it's not actually a detective film. It's more about life, about coming Mm. to terms with youthful understanding, and as has been said, the crushing disappointments that can happen to you as you age. What do you say, Neil? Um, <laughs> oh, the truth hurts. <laughs> um, you know, if you look at detective films or detective, we spoke about Sam Spade and Philip Marlowe. So Sam Spade, for example, is a man who understands the sordid nature of his world and moves throughout it right in wrongs and never trusts those around him. Now, you've got this character, wonderfully played by Adam Brody of Abe Applebaum, and he warns his client, you might uncover things you don't like. And, of course, he's just paying lip service to that because he's seen it on so many TV shows. But he's unaware of his own shortcomings, and that's exactly what's going to happen to him. You know, he discovers his great hero is actually a supervillain. And he's destroyed by it. And that sequence at the end where he breaks down in tears is the fact that he realises he's been manipulated by a person he thought was his friend and ultimately destroyed. He's not a detective. He's just a very sad drug addict now in his 30s. But if you take the wider perspective of this film and look at it on a almost metaphysical level, which is this is a film about life and what happens to you as you grow older, I was totally engaged at that level. And I think the payoff works. The mystery certainly is really good. And sadly, as disgusting as it is, it happens all too often in America. So I think it's always interesting, but I don't think I found it interesting in the way the director wanted me to find it interesting. But I still would recommend it. So thank you guys for your thoughts on this quirky movie. The Kid Detective can be found on Video On Demand from most streaming services. Let's go over to Darren's Dash for some more recommendations. First up is The Columnist. Um, this is a Dutch black comedy about an outspoken columnist who is struggling to write a book and she's being harassed on social media by the usual trolls and haters who are bombarding her with abusive, misogynistic messages. And she starts to track down some of these people and she finds that there's one even living next door to her. And so she pretty much goes on a murder killing spree and becomes a serial killer. She gets a real taste for it. (laughs) (laughs) Now... As someone... You don't need to say any more. No. I, I'm invested. I'm fully I'm invested. In. I'm in. <laughs> I'm in. <laughs> wow. Now, as someone who has a real love-hate relationship with social media, I really got a, a kick out of this um, film. I found it devilishly cathartic. I hate the whole troll culture. I hate the whole anonymous 
um, sort of keyboard warriors who feel they can be sort of vile to people, uh, you know, just because no one knows who they are. Because of that, I just found a lot of humour in this. You know, such a you know a simple concept, but you know, sort of weirdly dark humour. And it was really well paced too, because one of the things that I liked about it is it had all the goriness, all the kill spree and everything early on. And then the sort of the, the examinations on the sort of on the whole sort of troll culture and ideas of freedom of speech and that sort of thing, and the whole sort of obsession that you have where you you know, people hate social media at times, but they still can't, you know, bear to actually sort of, you know, turn away from it. It's almost like a car wreck at times. The main concept of the film never ran out of steam for me. And it's very gory. It's very bloody. And it's one of those films that even though you knew you weren't supposed to be, you couldn't help but cheer her on. Well, at least I couldn't anyway. This one is on Amazon Prime. It is a rental at the moment, oh. but I really do recommend it because it is a lot of fun. Because it's a uh, foreign movie, it basically doesn't pull any punches. It doesn't try to make it into a slapstick. It is funny, but it does. It is very gory as well. Which you know, and, and I thought this was a lot of fun. Uh, anybody else seen it? I've not seen it yet, but my um, my brother, oddly enough, uh, sent me a message about a week ago saying this film's available on Amazon to rent for three pound fifty. Watch it; it's brilliant. So I am going to watch it. It sounds good from that that yeah, review me as well. Too. Oh, I'll add that to my list. Thank you, Darren. What's next? Next up is uh, another film, which is a rental on Amazon, and quite cheap. And I actually che- uh, rented this, I think, for one ninety nine. And it's called the uh, the owners. It's a British film, so it's the first time director Julius Berg, and it's got um, Maisie Williams in there as a uh, as a young girl who reluctantly is dragged along with a scumbag boyfriend and a few of his thug like mates to uh, burgle an old couple's uh, large home. Out in the country, um, you know, this really nice estate home. And uh, when they get in there, they're unable to get into the safe. So they decide to wait until the uh, the elderly couple get back to take them hostage and force them to uh, get into the safe and get all the contents out there. However, it soon becomes clear that this uh, little elderly couple are not as vulnerable as they appear. And, so, and this is another film where the less that you know going in, the better. And I was really intrigued to 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 rent this because it's got Sylvester McCoy in as the as the elderly person, and he is absolutely great in it. He's he's got this like really meek manner that you expect from him, but he's also really sinister as well. The film has got an uncomfortable feel throughout it. There's quite a lot of spooky, foreboding moments to pick up early on. If any of you guys remember a, an old TV show called Pitkin which was a, a bit spooky to say, say the least about a sort of a, an animated rabbit. You, you, you'll you get a few glimpses of that in there, which makes you feel really uneasy throughout the film. And it gets really, really disturbing. It gets really gory. It does go very much into League of Gentlemen um, territory at times. You can see that you know there are some sort of old-fashioned you know, um, British horror and comedy elements, a little bit of Hannah in there as well. But I thought it was really refreshing because it is very British. Aside from the cast, it's got a very British feel to the, the film and also that really sort of dark sense of humour. And I, I, I thought this was an absolute blast. And it's one that I um, you know, I, I really think is worth supporting because it is a real crack. Apart from it being a British film, it is a real cracker, but it is very sort of tense and, very, like I say, very, very gory. 
I, I love the poster, which reminds me of the old Hammer movie, so it's definitely on my list. Uh, anybody else seen it? Well, actually, this pointless statement, that is. Uh, Phil, have you seen it? It's pointless asking the other two. <laughs> uh, no, I've, I've not seen this one, and I have to say I'm not a fan of Maisie Williams. Everything I've seen outside of Game of Thrones I've, I've not loved, but um, £1.50 doesn't sound too much of a hardship. It, it sounded reasonable, so I might give it a go. Darren, back to you. Next up is uh, Love and Monsters. And this is a film that has just arrived on Netflix, uh, directed by uh, Michael Matthews. And it is a, a film that was supposed to have been released in cinemas, but thanks to COVID, it's ended up on streaming. And I think this is a real shame, not just because it would have been a good film to see on the big screen, but because it's that sort of small, cultish film that I think could have found a, a real sort of audience and been a bit of a surprise hit. And I think it's um, really deserved to find some success that way. So it's a real shame for the filmmakers in, in this one. It's not a massively original story. It's set in a post-apocalyptic world where radiation has called wildlife to mutate into giant monsters. And survivors are forced to... Uh, uh, form little small communities, uh, you know, from these giant creatures. And we follow a young man called Joel who is uh, living in a bunker and he's frustrated because he has this uh, anxiety condition that pretty much makes him useless and uh, any sort of anything to do with battling these creatures or going on the outside world. And so he's pretty much, you know, left being the one that has to do all the cooking and everything. He finds out that his uh, girlfriend, who has been separated for for seven years, is actually surviving on another commune somewhere. And they speak to each other on radio. And one day he decides that he basically, he wants to do something. And he goes on a quest to uh, head out into the uh, outside world and find her. So it's a story about him sort of finding his courage and and exploring this, you know, this really dangerous new world and everything and and meeting up with his uh, long lost girlfriend. And it's a really, really fun adventure. He picks up an intelligent dog along the way as his companion. He meets up with Michael Rucker in a cool role who basically um, is is a drifter and he teaches him how to survive in this outside world. It's got great characters. It's funny. It's very much got a vibe of Zombieland. It's that sort of, you know, lighthearted. It's more fun and colourful than dark. But where this film really excels is in the visual effects. For such a small budget, it's only about three million. It looks absolutely amazing. The creatures are really impressive. They look really realistic. And they, um, they're actually weirdly, in a strange sort of way, beautiful. All, all, the, all the scenery and animals and creatures, even the dangerous ones, they look, re- you know, designed really, really well. A lot of my problems with um, monster movies, with sci-fi films these days is when they create these alien menaces, they always basically just stick a load of teeth and tentacles on them and everything. In this one, there's sort of been some real care taken to designing these creatures. So you see like, a, you know, a mutated giant toad, a mutated giant crab, and they look absolutely splendid. And there's, there's scenes where they're actually just sort of, where they'll be walking through this sort of like, you know, this lush forest land. But when you say post-apocalyptic world, this isn't one where it's, everything's a desert or sort of ruins. It's one where nature has sort of reclaimed the earth, so it looks absolutely beautiful. And there's some great scenes in this. It's actually been nominated for an Oscar for Best Visual Effects. And I know there's at least probably because we've had a lot of blockbusters put back, it's not had a massive amount of competition. But it is a beautiful scene to, to look at. And it's also got a great story. You really get into the character. 
it, towards the end, it's got one of the most moving scenes that I've seen in a film in ages. It's absolutely wonderful. It, it's not an original premise, but what it does with it is is really striking and it's really worth watching. Phil, you've seen it, haven't you? Yeah, this is this is a brilliant film. Agree with everything Darren's just said. That the setup I think is really funny. That uh, there's an asteroid and we do what we do best and we blew it up. But actually, all the toxic radiation from the stuff we used to blow it up is what caused the problem. Um, <laughs> I think that's see. really great. It's a really good family film. I watched this with my 10-year-old and my 6-year-old, and it does the monster reveals really well. My kids were just the right sort of amount of scared in terms of, you know, you, you kind of almost play this game of what mutated creature is it this time because they kind of reveal it slowly in each kind of scenario. Um, and of course, they absolutely loved the dog. They had a lot of fun with it. I had a lot of fun with it. It's, it is just really, really good. Another one for the list, then. Yeah. One last one from you, Dan. Okay, so the last one um, is the Breaker Uppers, which is another Netflix movie. It's not a new one, but as I always say when I do this dash, sometimes I'll, if I find a film which is a few years old that I think has has, has missed out on getting an audience. I'll give this a shout out as well. So with The Breaker Uppers, this is a New Zealand comedy and it's written, directed by Madeline Sammy and Jackie Van Beek, who are actually the two starring leads in this film. So they've done the whole thing themselves. And in this film, the two run an agency where they basically help people break up from their significant others who are basically people who haven't wear at all or the guts to do it themselves. And sometimes this is basically just them going and breaking the news to them, like, you know, turning up on somebody's uh, doorstep and, and singing a song and how their lover wants to break up with them. Sometimes it's tricking that um, that partner into um, doing something that gives the other one an excuse to dump them. And in the most extreme case, it's actually them pretending to be police uh, officers and telling one woman that her husband has gone missing and is probably dead and coming up with a convoluted way of why there's not a body to view. So it's that sort of really dark, really tasteless comedy. The the reason why this film, I, I think, works so well is that the two women in it are a great double act. They've obviously come up with the characters themselves, and I think they've probably based them a little bit on each other and their sort of friendship because it works really well. It's that typical New Zealand dry sense of humour as well. Everything is in, in the dialogue and the sarcasm and the banter between them and everything. The stories that they get into, there's some really farcical elements at times where they basically get where some of the jobs just spiral out of control that are really funny. But it does have a really good story in there as well about how one of them starts to become friends with some of the people who have been affected by these jobs and starts to question whether what they're doing is, is the right thing, which ultimately sends a um, bit of a wedge between them both. Comedies, I think, are, are a real hit and miss. I, I think now, I think it is one of the... Um, I'm always... One of the things where we talk about the Oscars, I'm always, I'm, I always wish that comedies would get more recognition because I think making people laugh for, for 90 minutes and having a good story is one of the most difficult things to do and I think it deserves more respect. So I, when, when something like this comes along, I think it's you know, something that is unexpected and is a real treat. It's something that you really sort of need to cling on. It is a, a really funny movie. I wouldn't be surprised if this is the sort of film that Hollywood actually discovers 
and then basically tries to do a remake of probably sort of starring Kristen Wiig and Melissa McCarthy and then making a complete hash of anybody because they don't understand subtlety or anything like that. If you've not come across this already, this is a really, you know, good cult one. Just just really sort of down to earth, just a really good double act in there. And this is one I really recommend as well. And it's brutal in some places. Somewhere yeah. they go up and talk to talk to these people and they're standing there, what? <laughs> when they break up the gay wedding, that's the best one. That just had me in fits. I actually uh, watched this two years ago on a recommendation from Phil. Phil recommended yeah. this to me. Mm-hmm. And I, I watched I it about it a year ago. I'd probably watch that Kristen Wiig and Melissa McCarthy version. It might not have the subtlety, but I reckon no. that, would, that would be funny as well, I'd, actually. I think it's the subtlety and the fact that they're, they're just so horrible people. <laughs> Genuinely nasty. And love the fact that their relationship between each other goes changes as the movie goes along as well. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot deeper than it appears. Thank you, Darren. Anyway, that completes my dash for the month. Okay, so out of the films reviewed, which one would you rate as your favourite? Palm Springs for me. Uh, Zack Snyder's Justice League for me, just to prove to Jeff that I don't hate DC, but also <laughs> honourable mentions to Palm Springs and Kid Detective, which I loved. Uh, Zack Snyder's Justice League for me, and it also got a uh, vote from Elijah. Uh, I'm going to go with Palm Springs. Um, and I'm going to go with Palm Springs on repeat because that obviously suits the theme and the kid detective gets a close second. Yeah. Palm Springs run. And I'm shocked, Darren, at that. I thought you would have gone for Justice League. As for next month, we have film reviewer and blogger Kaz talks us through some of her incredible choices of her top film list postponed from last month. Another eagerly anticipated feature in Darren's Star Trek series. As we reach Star Trek 4, we bring the Bond films of the 1960s to an end with not one, but two special shows. So, gentlemen, I can safely announce that's a wrap and another At The Flicks is in the can. Neil, you almost made it through a show without swearing. So I guess I have to get that soap out it again. No, Neil, it goes in your mouth. I'll tell you where it's going to go in a minute. <laughs> As they say, that's life, boy. <laughs> oh, God, that's, that's an a ancient joke. That will only work in the UK. <laughs> and to everyone else, thanks for listening and goodbye. make sure you never miss an episode of this podcast, please subscribe to At The Flicks at our website, attheflicks.uk. And if possible, please remember to rate and review At The Flicks wherever you get your podcasts. You can contact the team on Twitter or by email. Our contact details are also on our website, attheflicks.uk. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.